0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War Podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
2: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 286 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
2: All right, so as you will recall, we spent the last couple of shows looking at events downriver from Vicksburg, particularly with regard to what Major General Nathaniel Banks was up to in Louisiana.
0: In fact, at the end of the last show, it was May seventh, 1863, and Banks' successful bayou Teche campaign had taken him to Alexandria on the Red River, where he found David Dixon Porter and half a dozen federal ironclads, which delighted him.
2: But then Porter told Banks that the help Banks was anticipating, was counting on, was expecting from Grant, um... Yeah, that wasn't going to be happening. Instead, Porter told Banks that Grant had crossed his entire force to the east side of the Mississippi below Vicksburg, and then marched off to the east, away from the river, into the interior of Mississippi. Banks was, well, stunned by this news. What on earth was Grant doing?
0: If we backtrack a bit to the night of March 28, 1863, we find that thunderstorms were drenching the federal camps and anchorages opposite Vicksburg. Perhaps the spectacular display of nature's might cleared Ulysses S. Grant's head, because the next morning he made the fateful decision that, among other things, would leave Nathaniel Banks high and dry at Alexandria six weeks later.
2: As you guys know from listening to this story arc, Grant had spent the winter trying to keep his army intact and occupied while he attempted various projects that might possibly get his army on dry ground on the same side of the river as Vicksburg. However, all of those projects had come to nothing. And so now, after months of frustration and failure, Grant was ready to test his conviction that the only way to solve the Vicksburg problem was to march his army down the Louisiana side of the Mississippi River and then cross over the river south of the Rebel Strong Point. That would get the Army of the Tennessee on the same side of the river as Vicksburg.
0: As Spring had approached, there had actually been three options discussed at Army headquarters as far as how to crack the nut that was Vicksburg, since all of the various different schemes attempted that winter had come to naught. The first option was to launch a direct amphibious assault across the Mississippi River and storm Vicksburg directly. It was agreed this would be little short of suicidal, so Grant discarded this as a possible course of action.
2: The second option was to pull the Army of the Tennessee back to Memphis and try the overland route once again. But not only had this approach already been tried and failed when Earl Van Dorns and Nathan Bedford Forrest's Confederate cavalry had wreaked havoc on Grant's vulnerable line of communication and supply, but Grant was also well aware that any pullback to Memphis now would appear to the administration in Washington and to the northern public to be a retreat, an admission of failure and the repercussions of that might just result in Grant losing his command.
0: The third option was to march the Army down the west side of the Mississippi, find a suitable crossing point, and transfer the field of operations to the areas south and east of Vicksburg. In characteristic fashion, Grant boldly opted for the march south.
2: As the first step in the implementation of this bold plan, Grant, on March twenty ninth, ordered John McClernand to start to move his thirteenth corps down the west side of the Mississippi River from Millican's Bend to New Carthage, midway between Vicksburg and Grand Gulf, where McClernand was to prepare to cross the river. The exact landing site on the east bank was yet to be determined, but once across, McClernand would either march south to Port Hudson or north to Vicksburg as circumstances dictated, while presumably Grant and his other two corps, having also crossed the river, would keep John Pemberton occupied.
0: Actually, Grant's other two corps commanders, William Tecumseh Sherman and James McPherson, had serious reservations about the projected movement. In fact, after meeting with Grant and trying unsuccessfully to talk him into taking the Army back to Memphis and trying the overland approach again, Sherman went so far as to send Grant a letter stating his objections, thus putting them down on paper so they would be on the record in case of disaster.
2: And so, in a strange twist, it was actually John McClernand who enthusiastically supported Grant's plan. McClernand had never got over his belief that he had been wrongly deprived of the independent command he thought he'd been promised, and so for months now he had schemed to somehow get back what he felt was his, that is, command of the Vicksburg campaign. But his stream of letters to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and to Abraham Lincoln had not had the desired effect.
0: Despite his bitterness at being superseded, mcclernand had dutifully carried out grant's orders during the winter and spring. Now, ironically, he was the only corps commander to demonstrate enthusiasm for the proposed operation to move the army down the west bank of the Mississippi and then cross over the river below Vicksburg. Mcclernand's support of grant's plan was ironic because as it turned out, this would be the operation that elevated Sam Grant to the top tier of Union generals, while relegating John McClernand to the sidelines.
2: With regard to the plan he had decided upon, As was usually the case in any campaign during the Civil War, the most serious problem Grant faced as an Army commander was logistical. Here, in order for the operation to succeed, he needed a reliable means of moving supplies across the soggy Louisiana countryside. Spring had arrived, but the roads weren't yet firm enough to carry the Army's supply train, that is the hundreds upon hundreds of wagons, needed to support a force the size of the Army of the Tennessee. A solution seemed to be in hand in the form of Walnut Bayou. The Army's line of march would be the winding road that ran atop the natural levee, or strip of higher ground, alongside the bayou, while the line of supply would be the bayou itself.
0: Federal engineers laid out a canal from Duckport on the Mississippi River between Young's Point and Milligan's Bend to a back swamp about a half mile inland. The nameless meandering streams in the swamp flowed into Walnut Bayou, three miles farther inland. When the canal was completed and the bayous cleared of obstructions, the result was a narrow, serpentine waterway 37 miles in length, that connected the Mississippi above Vicksburg with New Carthage below.
2: On April 13th, the Mississippi River levee was cut, and water surged through the canal and into the bayous. A procession of dredges, tugboats, and heavily laden barges entered the passage and set out for New Carthage. Everything was going according to plan. Then came an unexpected setback. The high water in the Mississippi River that had plagued the Federals all winter suddenly fell and stranded the vessels. Disappointed and disgusted, Grant ordered the Walnut Bayou route abandoned. Like every other project that had been attempted in the bottomlands, it had been unsuccessful.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: While Grant explored other means of moving supplies, the operation went forward. McClernand's troops began slogging south on the Walnut Bayou Road on March 31st. It would be one of the hardest marches of the war, but it would also be the turning point in the Vicksburg Campaign.
2: The spring flood was receding earlier than expected, as the Duckport Canal Walnut Bayou fiasco demonstrated, but the countryside was far from dry. Pioneer troops, aided by ordinary soldiers and contrabands, constructed dozens of bridges and miles of causeways and corduroy roads.
0: Corduroy roads were made when tree trunks were laid crossways across the boggy roadbed like railroad ties.
2: Exactly. Well, as you might guess, the work was grueling and progress slow. An Ohio soldier recalled that, quote, The road was all but impassable. It lay through a vast bog, intersected by numerous bayous, half flooded with water. The heavy artillery wheels cut through the slime and the mud through which we waded knee-deep, and where the hubs of the wheels often disappeared out of sight.
0: The difficulties in making such an arduous march would have stopped most Civil War armies in their tracks, but McClernand's tough Midwesterners pushed on and reached New Carthage on April 6th.
2: The movement of such a large force down the west side of the Mississippi couldn't be kept secret from the enemy for long. So Grant attempted to distract the Confederate commander at Vicksburg, John Pemberton. When McClernand started his march south, Grant sent Major General Frederick Steele's division from Sherman's Corps in the opposite direction.
0: Steele left Milliken's Bend on April 2nd and steamed upriver to Greenville, Mississippi, about 70 miles north of Vicksburg, where he undertook a campaign of protracted pillaging. Steele's men destroyed half a million bushels of corn and carried off over a thousand animals. They also liberated more than a thousand slaves. Steele returned to Milliken's Bend on April 24th.
2: The primary purpose of the Greenville expedition was to divert Pemberton's attention away from McClernand's movement. But it also reflected a shift in the policy of the Lincoln administration. As Halleck told Grant, quote, The character of the war has very much changed within the last year. There can be no peace but that which is forced by the sword. What that meant in practical terms was that henceforth the Union Army was to bring the war home to Southern civilians by enforcing emancipation, and seizing or destroying all foodstuff, fodder, and other items of possible military value.
0: A few months earlier, Halleck had directed Grant to enroll black men into military service. Grant accepted the new policy without hesitation and made it clear that he expected everyone under his command to, quote, Especially exert themselves in carrying out the policy of the administration, not only in organizing colored regiments and rendering them efficient, but also in removing prejudice against them.
2: During the spring of 1863, growing numbers of black troops began drilling at Millican's Bend under the watchful eye of Brigadier General Lorenzo Thomas, the Adjutant General of the U.S. Army, in a similar fashion, Grant accepted the new policy of expanding the war to include southern social and economic institutions. He informed Steele that, quote, Rebellion has assumed the shape now that it can only terminate by the complete subjugation of the South or the overthrow of the government. It is our duty, therefore, to use every means to weaken the enemy by destroying their means of cultivating their fields and in every other way possible, in other words, steel was to seize or destroy everything of military value in his path, including food, animals, and slaves, which is exactly what he did.
0: The Confederate response to Steele's Greenville expedition was all that Grant could have hoped for. Pemberton ordered Stephen Lee to halt Steele's depredations. While Lee entered the bottomlands north of Vicksburg in search of the Yankees, who had long since returned to Millican's Bend, McClernand moved closer to New Carthage. The unheralded Greenville expedition was a success both as a raid and as a diversion.
2: Steele's expedition was followed by two coordinated federal operations that dispersed Confederate military forces and left Pemberton more distracted than ever. Hundreds of miles to the northeast, William Rosecrans launched a daring effort to sever Braxton Bragg's line of communications and compel the Confederate Army of Tennessee to abandon its namesake state. In mid-April, Rosecrans sent Colonel Abel Strait and an infantry brigade mounted on mules toward the Western and Atlantic Railroad between Atlanta and Chattanooga. After a punishing, running battle with Nathan Bedford Forrest's rebel horsemen across northern Alabama and Georgia, Strait and his command were compelled to surrender. Forrest's hard-fought victory saved Bragg, but weakened, and possibly even doomed, Pemberton. You see, though the Federal raiders failed to reach the railroad, they drew Forrest all the way over to Georgia, and left his men and horses worn to a frazzle. That meant the most effective Confederate cavalry commander in the West would therefore play no further role in the struggle for Vicksburg.
0: With Forrest fully occupied by Strait and his mule-mounted Federals, Major General Stephen Hurlbut, commanding Grant's 16th Corps from Memphis in western Tennessee, launched a raid of his own against Pemberton's line of communications. On April seventeenth, Col. Benjamin Grierson and 1,700 Union cavalrymen left LaGrange, Tennessee, and headed south through the gap in the Confederate defensive perimeter, created by Forrest's absence.
2: Grierson's objective was the Southern Railroad of Mississippi, 200 miles inside Rebel Territory. His command reached the railroad at Newton Station, 65 miles east of the Mississippi state capital of Jackson on April 24th. The Yankees tore up tracks and cut telegraph wires and burned bridges and water towers along the railroad. But then instead of attempting to return to Tennessee through an unfriendly countryside swarming with now thoroughly aroused Confederate forces, Grierson continued south and reached friendly lines at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on May third. The Federal horsemen met no significant opposition on their 16-day, 475-mile odyssey through the heart of Dixie. Total losses came to four men killed, 16 wounded, and 17 missing.
0: We plan on covering Grierson's raid in more detail on some future members' episodes because it was undeniably the most spectacular Federal cavalry operation of the war thus far, and because while it began as a strike against Pemberton's line of communications, it turned into an extremely successful diversion.
2: Yep. Uh, the true importance of Grierson's epic ride wasn't the amount of damage inflicted on the Southern Railroad of Mississippi, which, in truth, was relatively minor. But the true importance of the operation was found in the consternation the raid created within Pemberton's department, and more to the point, how effectively it distracted Pemberton from what Grant was up to. That's because Pemberton personally directed the effort to stop Grierson, And so for the better part of two critical weeks, while the main body of Grant's army was on the move, John Pemberton's attention was focused on a few regiments of Federal Cavalry in his rear.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Real Horse Soldiers. Benjamin Grierson's Epic 1863 Civil War Raid Through Mississippi by Timothy B. Smith.
2: As we mentioned just a minute ago, we plan on using some members' episodes to cover Grierson's raid in much more detail after we're done talking about Van Dorn's Holly Springs Raid. But anyway, if you'd like to look into Grierson's ride yourself, then we recommend picking up Smith's book, The Real Horse Soldiers. It's a rollicking good read.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: And speaking of Van Dorn's Holly Springs Raid, just yesterday we posted members episode number 90 over on Patreon, so the members of the Strawfit Brigade can check that out. And then as we wrap things up for this show, we do want to give a shout out to the newest members who signed on this past week, Andy, Kathy, and Scott.
0: Thanks, y'all. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye.